This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are joining us for the very first time, for the next hour, we take people's questions from God's Word. Maybe there's a specific challenge or application or understanding of a passage as it relates to your life or ministry, and and you want to uh, dialogue with that. There's several ways in which you can communicate to us. You can email us here directly in the studio and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. You can call us, as Rick just mentioned, at our 843 exchange, and that's 525-1859. And if you do call, you can go on the air live. We do give preference to live callers, or you can simply dictate your question, and we will do our best to answer it. Sooner or later, we try to answer every question that we can. So many come in. I can't answer 100% of them. There's just too many, but I will do my best to answer yours. And even if you uh, email it, we typically send you back an email response saying, uh, Dr. Berge answered your question today, and here's the link, and we'll show all the questions that were asked. And you can say, oh, yeah, mine's the fourth one, and you can scan down and find what you want. Anyway, I hope that helps. So those are some ways in which you can contact us. Let's go ahead and start, Rick. Okay, we well, do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for calling. I'm over in Springfield, Georgia. Okay. Thanks for your ministry. Anyway, um, I have a couple of questions. One is in regards to, I have a couple of dear friends that are very reliant and appreciative of the Jesus Calling series. And I know you've spoken several times, and I don't know that I've been where I've heard it, that I could better explain it. And I wish... If you could give me, enlighten me how I can explain why you don't think it's a good following. Then the other question is in regards to with everything that's happening among us, I, I reflect back to many years ago and hearing this elderly saint, and God bless her, I wish I had really picked her brain more. She re- kept referring to the true church. And I guess I'm concerned because I'm not hearing, even among uh, pastors that I follow or listen to, there's not a big distinction about, I think a lot of times we get real comfortable that we think, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, da-da-da-da-da, and we don't make light of the perhaps remnant that Jesus is coming back. That's how I see it. So I just kind of wonder how we can... If you can address that in the sense of true that uh, I even said something to my brother recently in regards to Jesus is coming back for a spotless church. And he quickly said, well, we're not going to be spotless until we get to heaven. And um, so I just wonder about that 
in regards to the okay. way everything's going right now and yeah. unfolding. Yeah, no, these and are great also questions. I think that the pastors, what I'm hearing, they don't make mention of the distinction about when they talk about the second coming of Jesus, a lot of the people think that that's the rapture time. Okay. All right. Let me see if I can respond. Um, first, to give you some real help, uh, I, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, that's the radio website, searchthescriptures.org, and if you click on resources, you'll see articles that I've written. And one of the articles is called Jesus Calling an Innovative Way to Sense God or a Dangerous Practice. And so I took just the introduction uh, to her book and did an evaluation just from the introduction. I mean, you couldn't get out of the pages of the, the preface, so to speak, which was, I don't know, eight or nine pages and think, man, this thing is just filled with gross error. And now, interestingly, and this article, by the way, made its rounds in a lot of places. Now they have removed the introduction from Jesus Calling. But I think it's really important to, if you have an older edition, you will find the introduction uh, to Jesus Calling by Sarah Young, and you will find out what really drove the way she thought. And number one, it's experience. She puts experience over the Bible. For instance, she writes in her introduction, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. What she's really saying is that the scriptures are not sufficient. By the way, that's um, a critical issue in our day, and it deals with the sufficiency of the scripture. And what she has done Others like Beth Moore and other, you know, so-called evangelicals have keyed off of this where, you know, Jesus spoke to me and this is what he said. And, and so she encourages you basically to uh, take a, um, you know, a book and write your, the things that God is directly saying to you. So while she affirms that the Bible's God's word. In practice, she's saying the scriptures are not enough. So that's the number one biggest issue. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he's now with the Lord in heaven, and he wrote a classic book called The Preacher and God's Word. And um, he said that the real battle of our times before he died was not going to be the reliability of scripture, but the sufficiency of scripture. And that's exactly right. If you listen to, to my next to the last sermon in the series on the Revelation, I deal with the whole issue of sufficiency because Jesus gives a warning at the end of Revelation not to add or subtract to God's Word. And what she has done is really reminiscent, I think, of Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, who, you know, she never denied Ellen G. White the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture, but she always referred to her writings as a lesser light to lead people to a greater light. And um, and that's basically what she's doing. She listens for this voice of God. She puts it in the first person. And what she's doing is sheer, um, it's heresy. It's wrong. It's false teaching. So, again, there is a several-page article that you can read um, at searchthescriptures.org, and that will walk you through. I don't like to say, well, so-and-so said this, and not to have my facts accurate. So usually before I comment on someone or something, I've done my research to make sure that it's just not being misrepresented on, on some guy's Twitter account or 
someone talking about it, but I, I go to primary sources and let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so I go right to her own writing from the introduction, which again, I find fascinating that it's been removed uh, from the newer editions of Jesus Calling. But this is the kind of dangerous teaching that has entered into the realm of evangelicalism for the simple reason that pastors are no longer teaching the the Bible verse by verse. Expository preaching has taken really a back door. And because of that, uh, all kinds of error have walked into the church. But uh, again, I I think for an in-depth discussion of this, um, go to my series on Revelation. In Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I preached one sermon on it. I called it God's Final Warning. And, um, and, it, and I go through the warning of adding to God's Word and the warning of subtracting uh, from God's Word. And we have a completed canon. We need to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need a, a Bible plus plan. We need the Bible. In the front of my pulpit, it says sola scriptura. Now, in reference to your second question, um, there is some truth between what we may, might call the true church and the professing church. The true church represents people who are genuinely born from above. And again, today we live in uh, easy believism, cheap grace kind of mentality where you can say, well, I've, I've accepted Jesus, I've received Jesus, I've trusted Jesus, and, and yet your life doesn't change. And so, you know, I, I, just in recent weeks, I've had people ask me questions. Well, you know, my son is living in this illicit sexual relationship, but, you know, he received Christ when he was 12, but he's been living with this woman for X number of years. Is he going to go to heaven? And again, a, a Christian can potentially commit any kind of sin. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Yet at the same time, the Bible reminds us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. All things have become new. Uh, Another man asked me in reference to his daughter who's married to uh, 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 another female. Now, you can call it a marriage. It's obviously not marriage. The Supreme Court can call it marriage, but it's not marriage because marriage, biblically defined, is between a man and a woman, period. But, you know, if she just asked Jesus to be her Savior— while remaining lesbian, will she go to heaven? And the answer is no, uh, because, again, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So there's the true church, and there's the professing church. And we're seeing this huge slide in evangelicalism of people who say they're born again but are not. Now, again, a Christian can commit any kind of sin, but if they've met the Lord, Lord Jesus, their life changes. And if they get caught up in sin, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines they meet God in his divine discipline, and those who are without discipline are illegitimate and not true sons. Um, in reference to a pure church, he's coming back for a pure church. Um, I think there's some truth in what your brother is saying in that we're not completely sanctified, completely set apart until we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And it's at that point that our sin nature is gone, and we will see the Lord Jesus like he is, and we will become like he is. We will be perfect uh, from that moment on for all of eternity. So that has not happened yet, and it will not happen. The one who says he's, you know, doesn't sin, he's calling him a God a liar, and, and he's misrepresenting Scripture. So um, again, there's a lot of confusion, too. You've asked a lot of questions here between the rapture and the second coming. There are two distinct events. First, he comes for his church. We meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, he comes back with his church 
Christ's feet will literally touch the Mount of Olives. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, there are people today who just blend those into one simple event, and therefore they typically erase the fact that Jesus will actually come back to the earth uh, and and those kinds of things. But uh, again, if you want to listen to my series on Revelation, I've got sermons galore, uh, and this would be a good series for you to listen to to really um, get grounded in the doctrine of, of end times, or what we call eschatology. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we've got another listener on the line who wants to uh, know a little information about uh, something you had mentioned earlier and where it can be found on your Search the Scriptures website. Thanks for holding, listener. You're on the air. Go ahead. We're listening. Well, I can't hear, hear her, but since I've only addressed one issue, I obviously know what your question is. So if you go to, if you type in searchthescriptures.org, that's where you want to go. And um, you can, uh, there's a drop down, uh, a drop down menu on resources and click on resources, and then you'll see articles, and one of the articles that will come up is uh, Jesus Calling, and I, I did an, I did a book review on it I, over a decade ago because um, it was such a controversial issue, and I felt a responsibility to protect, one, my own people, because uh, one lady gave me, like, this leather-bound copy, and she spent a lot of money, and I know she felt like she was doing me a favor, um, you know, oh, you, you've got to read this book, Pastor, and and I'd never heard of it before. It had just come out, but within months it was selling like wildfire, and now they have, you know, Jesus Calling for Kids and Sunday School classes and all kinds of things. But again, just go to the Search the Scriptures website. It's all there. All right, very good. Uh, Sean from Beaufort uh, has a question about the moral decline of our nation in regards to a Christian's responsibility to God, family, and country. He'd like to know, what is your take on the current moral climate and what can believers do to make the most of our time? He writes, I look at my children and I'm sad at the thought of America getting any darker than it currently is. Well, Sean, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, someone just said to me over the weekend, they said, I feel like I'm living in a different country. Uh, things are changing so fast and they're not headed in the right direction. Now, whether this is the final slide, you know, into darkness where Christ will come and rapture the church does not change my responsibility as a believer to be salt and to be light. So, you know, one, I, I need to pray. In fact, uh, we will be promoting a prayer meeting that will take place later in September on the steps of the, um, up in Columbia at the State House and Christians from all over the state will be gathering on September the 28th, and you'll start hearing ads for that on WAGP. Uh, Christians need to pray. Uh, now, sometimes people take, you know, Second Chronicles 7.14 out of context, and they assume that this is a wholesale prayer and that we can directly apply it uh, to believers today um, such that, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and so on, that God is automatically going to uh, heal our land. But understand that God is making a promise and a warning to Solomon. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace 
and successfully completed all that he had planned on and doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place, referring to the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by name, my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. What's he referring to? He, he's referring to the, the, the covenant that is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And if you go to Deuteronomy 29 and you read, um, let me just turn there real fast, really 29 and 30 are just enlightening chapters in terms of what God promised Israel if they would obey him versus if they disobey. And in Deuteronomy 29, you can read verses 24 through 29. God basically says the same thing. If you disobey me, I'm going to judge the land that you are on. If you obey me, I'll bless the land that you are on. So this is a covenant that God is reaffirming through Solomon in reference to the Jewish people living on the land. Now, can God's people pray today and bring about revival? Well, certainly they can, but understand too, there is coming a time in human history when prior to the rapture, there'll be no more revival. In fact, the final revival in all of human history takes place during the tribulation period. And I say revival, maybe a better word would be awakening because technically we usually use the term revival because it's used this way in in the Psalms and a few other places in reference to God's people getting right. Awakening is when there's a turning of unsaved people to the living Lord, and the greatest turning in all of human history will be during the tribulation period where there will be an untold number that's compared to the sand on the seashore of people who are converted as God gives his final wake-up call for people to get right and the wrath of God begins to unfold in the sealed trumpet in the bold judgments. But there is coming a time when there's not going to be a revival and things will only get darker. Now, I'm not saying we should grease the skids to bring about Christ's return from heaven. I'm not saying that, so don't misunderstand me. But neither do I want people to be disillusioned. Well, look, I've been praying and I'm seeking God and he's not bringing the awakening, the change in our country that we need. Well, you need to keep praying, and you need to keep being faithful to share your, the gospel with people because really the only way to fundamentally change this nation is to change the hearts of individuals, and that can only happen through the preaching of the gospel. And so, again, God reminds us that there'll be certain signs that will accompany the second coming. There have never been any signs for the rapture Only the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. Certain prophecies have to happen for the second coming to unfold. There has to be a rebuilt temple. There has to be an antichrist uh, who goes into the temple and uh, violates uh, what God calls even the tribulational temple. He calls it a holy place. And so there are certain things that have to happen, but nothing has to happen for the rapture. But as you see prophecy unfolding for the second coming, being fulfilled, you know that the rapture that precedes it is that much closer. And God said the final days before the second coming would be like the days of Noah. There will be a spirit of lawlessness and violence. And there are people in our nation 
who want to see this enhanced. They want to see the violence in the cities. Why? Because you have certain cities that are run typically, unfortunately, sadly, by Democrats who don't love America. And they want to see America fundamentally changed. And so they would really allow this kind of thing to go on. Why? So that we can change the founding documents on which we are um, to teach and to, you know, and to believe as Americans. Look, there's a law in South Carolina that one of my sons, Jameson, has been fighting for for seven years. And it's supposed to be the law in this state that every institution of higher learning is to teach the Constitution the Federalist Papers, and the Declaration of Independence. But, you know, you got these big wigs up there at, uh, you know, USC and Clemson who basically, you know, put their nose up at the law and they continually and habitually break it. And they lie to their constituents who give them money. Oh, no, we wouldn't break the law. They're liars. They are just sadly liars. And he wrote an article recently that I think has had over 100,000 hits on it. Uh, that deal with this subject, and he documents through the Freedom of Information Act, he wrote for emails amongst administrators and what was going back and forth, and he documented how this is a big cover. They don't want these college students to know anything about the Constitution. Uh, They want to promote socialism. Hey, look, let's just say for the sake of argument, Trump, is reelected, and obviously I hope he is. Why? Because I can't vote for a baby-murdering party, for a party that in its platform says we want to murder babies right up until the day before they're born. I can't vote for anyone like that in good conscience. I don't care what they are, Republican, Democrat, Independent. If someone holds to that, there's no way I'm going to vote for them. But let's just say for the sake of argument, Trump is reelected. What can we expect to see? I think we can expect to see across the country all kinds of uh, riots and all kinds of people. What's happening? We've got two worldviews that are clashing against one another uh, that represent two sides of the moral issue. That's really what is happening in our day, and that's why, sadly, We have all this turmoil that is happening. I think if Biden's elected, I think we'll continue to see rioting. Why? Because the Democrat Party wants socialism, I think, to replace of the founding documents of on which this nation was built. I mean, they have convinced the generation of people again, for the sake of argument, and we should do everything that we can to stay sin. You know, we might be able to hold it back another four years a little bit with a different president. But if you don't fundamentally change the hearts of the next generation that's coming up, you're not going to change America. And so on these institutions of higher learning, they've convinced the college student that we don't have a good system, that a socialism is preferred. And that's what they're indoctrinating the children with. And now they have moved that down to the high school level and some even on the middle school level. And they are trying to persuade a whole generation to adopt a new worldview uh, rather than the one that really reflected in many ways the biblical Judeo-Christian ethic. Look, I've never said, never have believed that we're a perfect nation. We, we aren't. We're not a perfect nation. But why is it that people are still banging on the door to get into America? 
And there's a reason because it's still and has been traditionally the greatest country in the world to live in. But it won't be if we continue on the road that we're in. So in reference to your children, you're, you're sad at the thought that America is getting darker. Well, you know, I imagine that's how Noah felt. Because as time went on over that 120 years, there were less and less and less believers, such that on the day the great flood came, there were only eight persons in all that acknowledged the one true God, and the rest perished. But the point is, is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and God always has his remnant, and God allowed Noah in the darkest hour that will mimic the hours before the second coming. I mean, we haven't seen anything yet in terms of growing lawlessness. And some of the signs are the days of Noah, the days of Lot, apostasy. That's what's happening all across America. You've got these so-called evangelicals. I'm not sure what evangelical means anymore, who, you know, are teaching all kinds of error and falsehood, who are jettisoning the faith, who are living immorally, um, a, a survey came out from Pew just last month, and it said that 52% of evangelicals said that you could live with someone that you're not married to, and as long as it's in a committed relationship and you're not cheating on the person, that there's nothing wrong with that. That's not an evangelical. You can call it what you want, but that's not a born-again Christian. That's a warped, distorted way of thinking. So the days of Noah, lawlessness, immorality, violence, the days of Lot, sexual perversion, apostasy, and Israel in the land. Those signs in and of themselves are huge because God said Israel would be in the land at the end of time before the second coming. And God continues to to do the miraculous by gathering Jews from all across the planet. You go to Israel today, there's Jews that speak 40 different languages from 100 different countries that are there. And it's a fulfillment of what God said he would do at the end of time. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And Andrew from Mount Vernon, Maine writes, Hello, Pastor Brogy. Uh, will you be making a trip to the Holy Land any time in the foreseeable future? And if so, is it open to people who are not members of your church? Thank you and God bless. Every time I do a trip to the Holy Land, I usually put it out on search the scriptures, and typically as much as half the trip come from other states and people who are not associated with the church I pastor. So, Andrew, I would love for you to come with us to Israel on our next trip. And I've had so many requests. The way I'm going to approach it, I think, in this next time we go is people who've never been before, we're going to give them uh, with me, we'll have a first chance opportunity. People have gone to the Holy Land. Like one guy went, he said, I went on one of those Catholic trips and every spot we went, we said the mass and he said, I didn't get anything out of it. And I said, well, that was a bummer trip, you know, and, and too bad. Um, but if you have not been with me, uh, in, you can, you can come assuming, you know, once we fill up, we, we fill up. Now I will tell you, we have had for nearly a year now, our trip scheduled for May of 2021, and we're just getting ready to open it up for promotion when COVID kicked into high gear, such that um, all trips to Israel basically are canceled. Uh, Right now, trips from um, airplanes from Tel Tel Aviv, I'm told, are leaving virtually empty, 
but they come back full from the United States, and it's mainly Jewish people who are relocating there. Uh, more and more Jewish people, they expect a quarter of a million Jews, 250,000 Jews to uh, take up residency just between March and December of this year from the United States. Uh, they're leaving, and again, it's a fulfillment of what God said would happen. And so now there are 7 million Jews, the 12.5 million on the planet, living in Israel, not by accident. And God doesn't even say 100% of them will go back. But uh, he had to reestablish them. They became a nation in one day, a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, And he continues to grow them and deepen them. And again, he's setting the platform for the return of Christ from heaven. So we had this trip scheduled in May. But right now, if I wanted to go to Israel, just myself, I would have to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days, assuming they'd let me in. And so you can't take a trip right now and say, we're all going to sit in a hotel, can't leave for 14 days, and then the trip will start. Uh, It just wouldn't work. And so basically all tourism to Israel has temporarily stopped. But as soon as we get a green light, we are planning to do it again. And I think what I'm going to do next time is I'm going to go there for two weeks. I'll have one trip that we'll leave with. And they'll be there a week. I'll stay while the second trip is coming, and we'll do two weeks so that uh, I've done two buses before and didn't want to go over that, but it's not ideal. Um, I think a smaller trip just allows for a little more companionship and camaraderie and teaching opportunities even while we're on the bus. So I'd switch between buses at every stop, and it just made it rather cumbersome. So um, if something, you know, like profound happens here in the next couple of months where things open back up to Israel, then we'll promote the May trip and we'll see what happens. But, but we'll let you know and we'll promote it on the station there in Maine that you obviously listen to out of Portland. Sure. We'll have uh, information on our Search the Scriptures daily program, which is heard all along the eastern seaboard. Judy from Bluffton writes, my sister wants to get a large print Bible and would like to know the best publisher from which to buy it. She has a copyright Old Testament version 1952, New Testament 1946, all in one Bible called Revised Standard Version, translated from the original tongue, 1611, 1881, 85, 1901, and 1952. This Bible was given to her by St. Peter's Lutheran Church, Michigan Avenue in Washington, D.C., back in the 50s, when we were in Sunday school there. All right. Well, the RSV is kind of an interesting uh, translation. Uh, If you take my course on bibliology, uh, bibliology is the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, Section 6 of that course, I do a review of all the major English translations. Understand, translations are written with uh, different uh, translation Um, goals in mind. There is everything from a literal translation, which in the hardest sense would be an interlinear Bible, all the way to a a paraphrase. And a paraphrase translation would basically be a commentary on the Bible. Not completely, but most most of it is. And it may be an accurate one or it may not. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation was the first major English paraphrase. It was done in the 1950s in England. 
Uh, then in the United States, the Living Bible came, and, and the guy who did the Living Bible did a decent job. Admittedly, he knew no uh, Hebrew or Greek, and if he was uncertain sometimes, he would ask someone who did. Um, but the whole impetus behind it is one day he was trying to teach his children the book of Galatians, and he said, well, let me just kind of write it in my own words, and I'll read that to the children. And he was teaching a Sunday school class at the time, and and they said, boy, you should do the whole Bible like this. And he did the New Testament, eventually the Old Testament, and so we had a paraphrased translation. But there are some things that, you know, were decisions that he made as to what it meant. So then you're really going past um, interpreta- uh, past translation into interpretation. The RSV was a very controversial translation that came out in the 1950s as liberalism was growing in the United States. There were some liberal scholars who didn't like words like propitiation, and so they changed that word to atonement. It was a little softer because they didn't like to describe God as a God of wrath. With that said, the RSV, one of my um, professors who's now in heaven, Howard Hendricks, he used to call it the reverse standard version of the RSV because of some of the gross errors in it. But most conservative evangelical scholarships protested that translation when it came out, and it was adopted by the more liberal denominations in the United States. Uh, to make a, a, a translation that was more readable than, say, the King James, since it was at that time in a very old English and very difficult to understand. What I would recommend for your sister today would be the New American Standard. I do think it is the most precise uh, translation that is still available. There are some other good translations, but uh, they take a uh, an approach where they put literalness and readability together with literalness first. There are some translations that put readability and literalness together with readability first. And so sometimes to smooth it out in English, an example, last Sunday we were looking at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, and it's one of those hinge verses in the book of Romans that begins a new section. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice. The NIV, that is... uh, not a dynamic equivalent, but more of a fluid equivalent, um, says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercy of God. Well, actually, the word mercy is not singular, it's plural. And so Paul is highlighting the multiplied mercies that he has spent 11 chapters. You say, well, that's not a big difference. Well, it is. It's precision. And God uh, translated it uh, or wrote it through the pen of the Apostle Paul in the plural, and so that's really how we should translate it. So I would recommend the New American Standard. Now, there's study Bibles that go with that, with notes and all kinds of different things. Uh, No two Christians will find a study Bible they agree on 100%. The MacArthur Study Bible is very good. The Ryrie Study Bible is very good in the NASB. Um, uh, So if you want to get study notes with it, that might be useful to you. But I would recommend as a translation the NASB, New American Standard Version. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Patricia emailed us, said, Hi, Pastor Carl, I have a question about James 5.16. I think the verse means that if you are struggling with a sin, to tell someone and to ask for prayer. Or is it we have to confess our past sins to each other that you've already repented from? I'm confused. Could you please help? Thanks. 
Well, context is um, everything. And in the context, he's dealing with people who are sick and not just sick in that, you know, I caught the flu or I got COVID or, but sick due to the discipline of God Almighty. And so he says, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And so obviously when someone goes under church discipline, uh, it's the elders of the church that initiate that. Those who are spiritual, Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 1. And so he is describing some people who were put out of the church. And when that happens, you're removed from the protective umbrella. And in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul exhorts the church there to do that very thing because there was someone who was living in uh, sexual immorality of the kind he said that even Gentiles or pagans don't approve of, namely that he has his father's wife. In other words, there was a, a guy who was living with his uh, stepmother, and he says, you've become arrogant, you should have mourned and been broken over it, you should have removed him from your midst. You haven't. I'm not there physically, but I'm going to do it in spirit in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, when you're assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for what? The destruction of his flesh. He's talking about a physical um, problem that comes through being removed from the protective umbrella of the church. You discover in Second Corinthians this led to his repentance, and so he got right. Um, but that's what James is really dealing with. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. So there's an assumption here that his sickness is related to God's discipline. That's why he's coming to the elders of the church. And if he has committed sins, and he has, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. So he's not talking about, well, we need to sit around in little circles and tell each other our sins, as was a a couple of popular books that were written 20 years ago uh, did off of this verse. No, he's talking about confessing our sins in the context of having healing, physical healing, because the sickness that is physical in nature here is related to disobedience. So um, uh, anyway, I hope I hope that will help you. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. And uh, we've got a question from a listener who would like to know uh, what age was Samuel taken uh, to the... Um, priest, and yeah. why did uh, his uh, mother not raise him? And then she also had a question regarding uh, what exactly are the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, the spiritual gifts? All right. Well, let me first deal with the Samuel issue. And uh, Samuel is an interesting case in point, and everything that's described in the Bible is not prescriptive for every believer. Uh, just like uh, I wouldn't read the case of Abraham on top of Mount Moriah offering his son and believe that from that I should maybe mimic the same pattern. No, that was unique. And I think you're dealing with a unique situation with Samuel in that God had set him apart to be a priest. It appears once she had weaned him, which typically in Israel's history was at the age of three. And so um, there was oral tradition uh, that the Jews passed down from generation to generation, and that's the age they took it at. And that doesn't mean either, clearly, that she had no more interaction, because she did. 
But God led her. It's a unique situation for this one who is going to become a great prophet in Israel's history uh, to be raised, in essence, in the temple uh, by the priest. And God is going to use that to raise up a leader as he learned the scriptures, as he learned uh, to walk with God and interface with the Lord. So that's unique. I don't think there's a pattern. I don't think like that's the biblical basis for child dedication uh, because no one has the authority to say, well, I'm going to dedicate my child to be a pastor today. You can ask God for that. But remember, this was a point where there was direct revelation from God. And there is no such thing today, contrary to the first question in reference to Jesus calling, where we get these, you know, text messages and emails directly from heaven where God is speaking to us. He's not doing that today. Uh, We have a completed canon that we are to interface with. Uh, That's not to say that you wouldn't want to, when you hold that newborn, dedicate the child to the Lord, but the dedication that was happening with Samuel was really quite unique, and there's no parallel for it today. And God was preparing the nation uh, for a great prophet who, among other things, you know, said some extraordinary things that has impact on Israel to this day, like Second Samuel 7. Um, so that was the first half of the question. What was the second question she wanted to She know? also wanted to know, what exactly are the spiritual gifts of wisdom, wisdom and knowledge? And knowledge? Yeah. So... Um, you might want to take my course on spiritual gifts. It's available at searchthescriptures.org. And uh, I think it's like 130-some pages. Uh, and you can uh, work through that whole course. And there are 20 spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And some that are what we might call foundational gifts that were unique uh, to the church uh, the early church, uh, as the church was being uh, built. And so, for instance, there's certain sign gifts, and the sign gifts would be things like um, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing and miracles. And in section six of the spiritual gifts course deals just with the, the sign gifts. But in section two, Um, of the spiritual gifts course, we go through all the various gifts of the Spirit as they are listed. Uh, I call that section the identification of spiritual gifts. And so we walk through the the 16 non-signed gifts of the New Testament and look at each of them and how they function and uh, how you are to exercise them today. Sometimes people try to categorize the the gifts uh, Speaking gifts, serving gifts, sign gifts, permanent gifts, temporary gifts, ordinary, extraordinary, and so on. Um, it's difficult to to do that um, because if you think about it, uh, there's some crossover with all of the gifts, and there's some um, some parallels, but some distinctions. Like um, certainly, tongues was a speaking gift of a supernatural nature but so is preaching and teaching, and yet they're distinctly different. So the gift of knowledge was the ability to uh, discover and analyze and organize biblical information so that Christians could grow. It has parallels with teaching, but at the same hand, and a teacher likes to dig into the details of a text and, and to teach it, but someone with the gift of knowledge uh, may not necessarily have a speaking gift. 
And so, for instance, a good example would be John F. Walvard. He was uh, the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He he wrote some books uh, that the body of Christ has been using for 50 years. Uh, He wrote, for instance, an encyclopedia of Bible prophecy. He wrote a very extensive treatise on the millennium. He wrote a great book on the Holy Spirit, and he wrote dozens of books, and he would systematically go through everything, say, the Bible said on the millennial reign of the Messiah, and he would put it together, and he would organize it. Now, if you ever heard him speak, uh, he, he didn't have a speaking gift, but some of the tools that he brought together uh, were just incredible and a great blessing, and there are people like that today. I have a friend who um, he doesn't have a speaking gift, but he's put together some information on the cults that were extremely useful and beneficial. Whereas the gift of wisdom, uh, again, not this stuff like Pat Robinson, I've got a word of wisdom, and there's somebody out there who, you know, has a broken toe, and God's healing you right now. That's just nonsense. Um, wisdom, the gift of wisdom was the ability to understand how the truth of Scripture could best be applied to a given situation or a church. And so the believer who has the ability to give a word of wisdom, as 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of, he's able to give an answer, a solution to some problem, to take knowledge, biblical truth, and apply it to, uh, to, to life. So they have this ability to really bring together, to synthesize uh, a biblical truth uh, with the Holy Spirit's help to a particular situation. Very, very practical gift. Um, the wisdom is not hidden like in the mystical cults. It's always based on Scripture. It's within the confines of Scripture. It's not some new revelation like Beth Moore says, well, I've got, a, I've got wisdom for you. God spoke to me. And that, that, that again, that's why this sermon I mentioned early on um, in reference to the book Jesus Calling, which is a very dangerous book, um, and the principle is being carried out by untaught, naive uh, teachers. Who knows where Beth Moore is going to end up? I don't know why um, Lifeway Books has not removed her, except that she's a cash cow and she's made some handsome salaries for some executives in that organization. It took them a while to take down some other people who... Uh, endorse gay marriage, and now Beth Moore is on that fine line of endorsing gay marriage, and she should be removed. But again, this is the problem with an open canon and new revelation and, and gifts of knowledge and gifts of wisdom have nothing to do with the charismatic Pentecostal approach to these gifts. All right, very good. Jernay emailed us, I used to come to church, but I stopped around 14. I've been going here and there. Is it okay to smoke weed? I've just turned 20, and I'm really having a hard time trying to stop sinning. How do I stop cursing? There are drugs, sex, and temptations all around me. I guess I'm asking how to get away from it all, how to separate myself. Well, let me answer your first direct question. Is it okay to smoke weed? And the answer is no. Um, Sadly, there have been, again, the term evangelicals becoming nonsense. We don't know what it means anymore because there's people who wear that label who are not obviously born again. But some have used Genesis one twenty nine. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth 
and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And they'd say, well, see, marijuana is a plant. God gave it to us. Well, number one, this is a pre-fall statement. This is before uh, sin entered into the world. He's going to speak just a little bit later here in Genesis 3. Curse is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. And he'll, he speaks about how by the sweat of your face you will eat your bread. And so God is clear that the creation fell. Romans 8 verse 20 speaks how the creation was subjected to futility. So one, this is a pre-fall uh, statement. Number two, I think if you're going to be consistent, there are certain plants that nobody would want to eat. There are certain plants that if you ingest them, you'll be dead within a minute. There are some that will make you sick. I had a pastor who came to my house once from the former Soviet Union, and he picked up a mushroom and he started eating. I said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you eating that for? Oh, this is safe. I said, how do you know it's safe? And he said, well, you know, during the time of uh, Stalin, when he tried to starve 38 million Ukrainians, you know, we had to go out in the woods, and my grandfather was out there, and they ate grass, and they ate bark off tree, and they ate fruit in the forest when they could, and uh, they ate certain mushrooms, and how'd they learn? Trial and error. So he knew that this was a safe mushroom. I've yet to eat one out of my yard yet. So uh, number one, uh, two, he speaks about food that you eat. I don't know of any food that we consume by smoking. And I don't know of people who put marijuana in their brownies to enhance the flavor. Uh, Some would say, well, it's legal. Well, because it's legal doesn't make it right. That would be a violation of Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, where it speaks of submitting to governing authorities. Uh, And you find the balance in Acts 5 where it says we must obey God rather than men. Abortion is legal. God calls it murder. Uh, it's legal to have an operation to change your gender. Um, God calls such a thing a perversion in Deuteronomy 22. Homosexuality is legal. God calls it an abomination. A homosexual marriage is legal. God doesn't call it a marriage. Uh, polyandry recently became legal in Somerville, Massachusetts. God calls it a perversion. Uh, in addition, pot, like alcohol, has intoxicating effects. And so it's analogous to the principle of Ephesians 5, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so when someone is taking alcohol, what's their intent? Because they like the flavor. Don't tell me that. They like the buzz. They like the high. It relaxes me. It gives me a, a, a sense of, you know, euphoria. And that's why people smoke pot. It impairs their uh, ability to um, relate to life in a real way. In addition, people who smoke pot, people who even call themselves born-again Christians, they do it for the same reason they, they, they drink, and that's to get a buzz. And it's a violation, clearly, of what Jesus promised. He said, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So basically what they're saying is that Jesus is not sufficient. I need to smoke weed to be happy inside. In addition, clearly it is a violation of the greatest of all the commandments. Jesus was asked by a lawyer, it's recorded in Matthew 22, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And what did he quote? He quoted 
the Shema in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when someone is buzzed, uh, they are not clearly able to use their mind. You know, we say don't let your mind go to pot. Uh, Literally, that's what happens when people are dope smokers. They become lazy. They become spacey. They can't think clearly. And I think there are permanent effects on it. How do I know? Because I've met people who for years smoked pot, and that's what it does to them. Look, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're to glorify God with your body. You're not to dull or diminish your capacity to worship the living God. And these potheads in our day are, you know, promoting uh, all kinds of evil in the world. Uh, They've got it legalized in a number of states. And states like Colorado now wish they had never legalized it. Why? Because like most police officers will tell you, it's a gateway drug to more problems. So my question as a Christian is not how close can I get to sin without sinning, but how far away can I be from sin that I might glorify God in my body, in my body that's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that I might show the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus to satisfy the deepest needs of life. I'll tell you, my friend, I'm so glad that you wrote today your need is conversion. You say, well, you know, there's sex, there's temptation. Yeah, this is what God said is going to happen at the end of time. We are seeing lived out prophecy, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And so um, what you need is conversion. You need to be born again. Now, you may think you're saved, but if the direction of your life is, as you describe it, you've never met Jesus Christ as your Savior. So what I suggest, Jernay, is that you either physically come to a meet the pastor, and those are listed at communitybiblechurch.us at the website. And if so, I don't know where you live. Uh, um, people write us from all over the country. Uh, or you can live stream that. And so we'll have uh, three in September that will be offered. And so you can live stream, uh, meet the pastor, and uh, learn how to be saved. And that's really what you need to know. Or today, if you so choose, you can go to uh, searchthescriptures.org and click on the presentation, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? You need to be saved. You are dealing with some huge issues, and one of these days, Jesus is going to come back. He'll sweep the true believers off the church up into heaven, and when that happens, it will be too late for people who have had opportunity to hear the gospel in clarity and in power. So today is the day of salvation. These are critical issues that you want to address. Thanks for being with us today. Another hour has left us, but God willing, we'll be back again on another Tuesday, next Tuesday, Lord willing. 